Aging Matters is brought to you in part by Kathy Corridan, Senior Real Estate Specialist. Kathy is a realtor with KW Metro Center in Alexandria and works with seniors in Alexandria, Arlington, and D.C. to make selling their home and moving less stressful and more successful. More information is available at 703-971-7237 or ccatkw at gmail.com. Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERA Arlington 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. By 2030, the incidence of heart failure will grow, resulting in millions of adults living with the condition and creating a greater need for at-home palliative care options. Recent research from the American Heart Association shows palliative care for heart failure patients may lower rehospitalization risks and improve patients' outcomes. Today, I have two guests. The first is Dr. Niraj Mandarada, Assistant Physician in Chief with Kaiser Permanente, and also volunteer medical expert with the American Heart Association. My second guest is Donna Gales. Senior Client Relations Executive for Washington, D.C. at Capital Caring Health, and also a family caregiver. Dr. Mandarada will talk about heart failure and the findings of the American Heart Association research study. Donna will discuss her mother's heart failure diagnosis and how providing palliative care enhanced her quality of life. So welcome, Dr. Mandarada and Donna Gales, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Cheryl, for having us. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Well, Dr. Mentorata, we want to learn all about heart failure and eventually also the information about the study. So we need a tutorial here. Explain to us what is heart failure and is that the same as congestive heart failure? Sure, Cheryl. Uh, Very simply put, heart failure means uh, the heart isn't pumping as well as it should be to keep up with the demand of the body. Congestive heart failure makes up a large category of heart failure, which means in the name itself, congestive, there's some congestion or backup of fluid into the lungs or peripheral tissues, which causes shortness of breath, chest pain, or swelling of the legs. And why is heart failure becoming more prevalent among older adults? Well, the fact is people are living longer. Uh, this is because there's been uh, lots of advancements in healthcare technology, access to care. There's a lot of good information out there on prevention. But it's notable that heart failure is prevalent amongst our elderly population, specifically over the age of 65 years old. But there's also other conditions that attribute to that. For example, gender, ethnicity, family history and genetics, and lifestyle, like obesity or maybe smoking or stress-related occupation. And because you're, you're talking about the various factors that are, are impacting the, the possibility of heart failure, do you see that this trend is going to impact the, the choice of treatment options then? 
Well, it certainly may. But the one thing that really comes to my mind is prevention. I think one of the things that we'll need to revisit and maybe do even better than we've done before is optimizing treatment. And this is done in several different ways. It's focusing primarily on prevention and um, conservative measures like focusing on lifestyle changes, diet and exercise. Also revisiting with the patients and making sure that they understand goal-directed therapy with regards to taking medications and compliance with medications. And last but not least, making sure our patients uh, have follow-ups with their primary care doctors and their cardiologists. And you mentioned a little bit of just a moment ago about risk factors, but go into more detail. I think sometimes people tend to uh, ignore risk factors. Give us a little bit more detail about risk factors of, of heart failure and, and why some people might be more susceptible to heart failure than others. Certainly. Uh, you can put this into maybe two categories. One is common and one is major. The common risk factors would be age-related. So we talked a little bit about the age of 65 and older. Um, gender plays a, a role in this. Uh, so females at the, over the age of 65 are more at high risk for heart failure. Family history, of course, if there's a first-degree relative that had a heart attack early on in life that predisposes you uh, to have high risk for heart failure. Other lifestyle choices like smoking or alcohol abuse, um, obesity, and high stress. These are all things that are considered common risk factors. Some of the major risk factors are uncontrolled high blood pressure or hypertension, coronary artery disease or atherosclerosis, which could be caused by increased cholesterol, maybe a previous heart attack, and last but not least, diabetes. And in addition to that, as I understand that there's a different categories of heart failure too. There's chronic heart failure versus acute heart failure. Is that true? Yeah, you're correct. And it really comes down to the presentation, the time of presentation. Acute meaning suddenly or chronic meaning with time. So here's some examples of acute heart failure. This can be caused by ischemic causes, maybe a heart attack. Um, another reason would be a, some, a, a problem with the electrical pathway of the heart, which causes arrhythmias. And the third one could be structural damage to the heart, like the lining of the heart, or the, which we call the pericardium, or any of the valves of the heart that cause it from uh, not beating or pumping blood efficiently. And uh, the chronic causes, of course, we just hinted on were um, disease processes like high blood pressure, uncontrolled high blood pressure, maybe previous heart attack, um, and then a coronary artery disease or diabetes or incre increased cholesterol. And so with all of these different conditions and possibilities and, and risk factors, are there a certain set of signs and symptoms of heart failure that differ maybe from some other conditions? I think there are so many different kinds of heart conditions that people get kind of confused. And we really appreciate having you explain exactly what are the signs and symptoms if someone is in heart failure? That seems to be pretty serious. Yeah, well, you, you mentioned overlapping, and there certainly could be some overlap, but for the most part, uh, the presentation and symptoms of heart failure uh, are with shortness of breath. You could have chest pain, swelling of the ankles and legs, weakness, fatigue, loss of appetite. And one of the most common ones gradually is, uh, we see is decreased exercise tolerance. If someone was able to climb up a flight of steps uh, a month ago and then all of a sudden is finding it 
very difficult and experiences short shortness of breath or chest pain in the process, this could be a, sign, a symptom of, of heart failure. Um, and certainly in advanced cases, you could have all of these symptoms just at rest. You could be experiencing shortness of breath just sitting in a chair or laying in bed. And I also, because interestingly, I wrote a, a thesis on women in heart disease. Are the signs and symptoms for older women or even younger women, are they always necessarily the same as those that are experienced by men? Yeah, you know, I think I think it is uh, underdiagnosed in women. Um, and um, it, it really comes down to knowing yourself and going to see your doctor the minute you feel that something is off. So I would always suggest when anyone, whether if you're a man or a woman, feeling any shortness of breath, chest pain, or swelling of the ankles, or decreased exercise tolerance, uh, it's, it's really important to make an appointment with your primary care doctor. And if I want to have you as a physician encourage uh, our listeners, if they're having these kinds of symptoms, to see a doctor, and if it's acute, would you also suggest that they call 911 rather than try to drive themselves to the hospital? Certainly, it really comes down to where you live and your access to care. Um, if the symptoms are acute and you can't breathe and you're having chest pain, crushing chest pain, or uh, significant shortness of breath, uh, certainly it, it, it would be advisable to get help as soon as possible. Uh, but if these symptoms are gradual and this is a concern, then it's definitely worthwhile to make an appointment as soon as possible. And then if a person goes to the physician, what are the usual tools and tests that are used to diagnose heart failure? Well, trial tested and proven and something I learned in medical school and training, history and physical, that's one of the best tests uh, your primary care doctor or your cardiologist is going to do, is take a detailed history and really take a deep dive into who you are, what your other chronic conditions, uh, medical conditions might be. If, um, you know, what you do for a living, um, do you smoke, do you drink alcohol, and maybe even uh, look into your family history in, in, in a little bit more detail, um, if there was a first-degree relative that's had uh, any heart conditions or a heart attack. Um, and some tests that can be done in the office setting are EKG, chest x-ray, um, and, and, and routine blood work that looks at your electrolytes and also a lipid profile. And then in some advanced cases, or just uh, in cases that require further workup, uh, an echocardiogram and a stress test can also be done. And this is now nicely leading into the topic of, of, of today's program about the American Heart Association research study. Tell us about the findings of, of that and why it was so unique about the value of palliative care for heart failure patients. Yeah, really great study, and, and it really validates a lot of things that frontline physicians and physicians have known for a very long time, which is that the value of palliative care uh, for our patients um, really uh, goes a long way. Uh, some of the notable things that the, the study showed was that um, there's less likely of patients that will get readmitted if they had palliative care support. Um, and then also the, the rehospitalization rate was less compared to those that did not have palliative care support with the history of heart failure. Most notably, patients that were, re, uh, that were admitted to the hospital had about 25% less likelihood of requiring mechanical ventilation or uh, ICU support if they had palliative care. Um, and, um, and the last uh, notable 
thing that the study showed was the prevalence of, of heart failure will increase by 2030. And this will require more uh, resources like home palliative care uh, for these patients. And we're going to talk a little bit more about those, those findings a little later. But I want to turn to you, Donna, now to give us a, an explanation about palliative care. What, uh, what is it? And are there different forms of palliative care? What would you tell us? Sure. Well, palliative care is really an extra layer of support, and it's very beneficial for anyone dealing with an advanced illness. It really focuses on easing pain and discomfort, reducing the stress of the disease process, and actually helping people have the highest quality of life that's possible. And of course, there are different degrees, I would say, of palliative care. Um, Of course, knowing that the goal is to make sure a person is comfortable. There are different times where palliative care may be more focused in the setting at home. There may be times where a person is looking at aggressive treatment. And then there may be a course in that process where they're toward the end of their disease process and curative focus is no longer um, an option or not really the paramount focus where a different form of palliative care hospice is actually um, more beneficial. So there's just a a matter of where you are in your disease process and what your goals are. Well, and that's a good way to take us to the next question. If if you were rendering uh, palliative care to someone, what kind of state would they be in versus someone who... uh, you're providing hospice care. Explain, because I think there's some kind of confusion, not kind of, but sometimes confusion about those two different kinds of care, and it would help for us to understand. And I think it's just a matter of the terminology because palliative care is really appropriate at any age and any stage of a serious illness, not just at end of life. But the difference in hospice care is that a doctor would reasonably be able to say that a person experiencing the disease process, would it would be likely if they were to pass away within the next six months. Now, what's interesting is that, of course, no one knows exactly when a person's disease process is going to end. But if that doctor could say they wouldn't be surprised by the end of that disease process in six months, that's more of a hospice focus. But a person can access palliative care from the day of diagnosis to start working on goals of care, Um, what their focus is as far as treatment options and things of that nature. So I think when people are talking about advanced illness care, they do get the terms, not necessarily confused, but they don't understand exactly what the focus is at a particular time. And so that, that really helps to know what the options are and what your focus is and what the goals of care are. Well, and then explain maybe what kind of conditions would warrant palliative care? Or asked another way, when would a patient or their family member uh, consider palliative care? I mean, what what type of diagnosis or condition would the, the person be um, having or experiencing? And would they be at home? Would they be elsewhere? Kind of give us a, a description of what that would look like. Sure. Well, palliative care is really a resource. Um, It's for anyone living with a a serious illness like we're discussing congestive heart failure, uh, chronic obstructive lung disease like COPD, cancer, 
um, dementia, chronic kidney disease, Parkinson's disease. There are many, many disease processes that would benefit from the support of palliative care because um, that, that care can be provided in any setting, such as a hospital, nursing homes, um, outpatient palliative clinics, specialized clinics such as the oncology clinic partners with some palliative providers, and even at home. Um, hospices are leading providers of community-based palliative care. So it can definitely be in any setting. But when a person is looking for more focused, comprehensive support through an advanced illness, hospice is usually what the person is looking for. However, that word can be very off-putting to people. And so they prefer to use the term palliative care, which is not inappropriate. It's just understanding the focus of the care. That's all. So uh, the ultimate result of even a person receiving palliative care would be a loss of life or end of life? It would be them managing the pain and symptoms um, associated with any disease process. The palliative care is simply going to focus on easing the pain and discomfort. So when we're talking about hospice care, that's toward the end of the disease process. And when a person is, let's say, for example, someone goes to the doctor and gets diagnosed with congestive heart failure. They're not at the stage of, of the end or the end of the disease process. They may just get diagnosed and they don't know where to go. They don't know what kinds of treatments they should have. They don't know what kind of diet changes they should have. They don't know anything yet. And they're looking to partner with the palliative provider to look at the goals of the care, look at what they can do to manage those pain and symptoms. They can use uh, palliative care for care coordination um, to assist them with developing a really comprehensive plan of care for them because they can actually be in the earliest stage of a disease process and be diagnosed and access palliative care. Because if a person, for example, has cancer and they still want to pursue aggressive treatment, palliative care is a complement to help manage those pain and symptoms while they're seeking aggressive treatment. So that's a different focus than a person who has gotten to the place at the end of their disease process where curative options are not the focus. That's when hospice is going to be more appropriate. Okay. And, and that's very helpful. In fact, I was also wondering, it, it sounds like hospice care would be someone had six months or less to live, but palliative care is, there's probably a longer uh, time in which a person could be uh, qualifying for and receiving palliative care. Am I That's absolutely correct. But I also want to make a note that it is, hospice is intended to provide at least six months of care, but we have actually had people on service for longer than six months because the management of their symptoms were such that they did not uh, have really crisis type situations where they would go back and forth to the hospital. So there have been people on hospice care who lived longer, much longer than six months. So while that is the anticipated time frame that a person would be receiving hospice care, it really just depends on how that disease manifests in, in that person's body and how it goes for them. Okay. And so for palliative care, it can also be a long period of time as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the goal to help a person who is dealing with advanced illness to focus on the highest quality of life. And by partnering with 
a palliative provider, that is really what happens. You're able to manage the symptoms so there are not hospitalizations after hospitalizations. You're able to get more information and support so that the journey is much easier. Not that, of course, a person dealing with advanced illness is going to have some concerns, obviously, but having a palliative provider partnered helps the family be supported in ways that they wouldn't otherwise be supported. You mentioned palliative provider. Define what that means. It would be a provider that is offering the type of support that palliative services may include. As I mentioned, the pain and symptom management, um, the team also offers care coordination. They do also help with advanced directives. A lot of times a person may get diagnosed with an advanced illness and they may have never thought about their advanced directives. That might not have ever crossed their mind, but of course, when diagnosed with an advanced illness, that may change your focus and having palliative care involved helps a person focus on what's important to them and how to really walk that journey out with the most quality. So it's really practical help with the completion of insurance forms and things like that. So it's a team supporting that person through their advanced illness and definitely offering support on practical levels. And the uh, organization that you're connected with, Donna, Capital Caring Health, that uh, that entity provides both uh, hospice and palliative care. Is that correct? That's correct. And there's also um, National Partnerships for Healthcare and Hospice Innovations in PHI, where a person could look into getting um, directed toward a provider as well as NHPCO, which is um, nhpco.org. You can go right on the website and get additional information specific to your area as to where you could connect with a palliative provider. All right. And explain how palliative care is administered. I was wondering if perhaps someone got in touch with Capital Caring Health, would the uh, physician of the um, of the individual receiving palliative care, would they still be involved? What, what is that process? What does that look like when someone is receiving palliative care? Well, palliative care is actually provided by a specially trained team of doctors, nurses, and other specialists who actually work together. And they're going to work with the patient's other doctors. And so it's basically based on that patient's need and actually going to make sure that that person's primary care physician, any of the specialists are involved in the continued coordination of the care. So if someone were to reach out and get connected to palliative care, it would be really like a consult service to actually complement the care that's already in place and really help that person have a comprehensive focus on how to manage the disease successfully. And I wanted to get back to uh, the study uh, that Dr. Mandarada and we're talking about during this program, uh, why in particular is palliative care a good option for heart failure patients? Because a lot of the symptoms, as Dr. Mandarada mentioned before, can really be difficult and impact the quality of life. Having a palliative provider on board to help manage those symptoms, such as the shortness of breath and the coughing that can be persistent, of course, the weight gain that happens, um, the edema that happens with the swelling in the legs and the ankles, of course, can be very, very troublesome for a person, especially an elderly person who is starting to have these symptoms. Having a palliative care support system helps to allow that person who would normally be dealing with these symptoms 
potentially alone or just with their family at home, maybe not having all of the education and support to help them minimize or mitigate these factors allows this family to be able to have practical tools and support in making sure that person is comfortable. Having someone that they can call and get additional information anytime, um, being able to have conversations that support educating the family and giving them really practical tools that can help increase the comfort in the home without going back and forth to the hospital. One of the things that really hinders a person's quality of life is running back and forth to the hospital for something that cannot be improved in that particular moment. A person who's having exacerbation of symptoms is going to be very uncomfortable. But if you have someone walking along the journey with you to help manage those symptoms so that you're not in a crisis mode, you can avoid the hospital and have more time at home with your family. Okay. Well, we're going to talk more in the second half of this program about uh, palliative care and more about the study Uh, the American Heart Association study, but we're going to take a short break right now in case you tuned in late. We have two guests, Dr. Niraj Mandarada, who is the assistant physician-in-chief with Kaiser Permanente, and he's also the volunteer medical expert with the American Heart Association. And my other guest is Donna Gales, who is the senior client relations executive for Washington, D.C. at Capital Caring Health, and she's also a family caregiver. And of course, You're listening to WERA Arlington 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Aging Matters is sponsored in part by the Aging Life Care Association, an organization of aging life care professionals. Aging life care professionals offer guidance, advocacy, and support for older adults and their families in order to maximize quality of life. An aging life care professional can be there for your loved one when you can't be. More information about the Aging Life Care Association is available at www.midatlanticalca.org. Welcome back. We are talking with Dr. Menderado, Assistant Physician-in-Chief with Kaiser Permanente and also the volunteer medical expert with the American Heart Association. And our other guest is Donna Gales, who is with Capital Caring and also a family caregiver. And to that point, Donna, tell us about the circumstances that led up to the diagnosis of your mom's heart failure. Wow. (laughs) So a lot happened. My mother had been um, ill before in the past, but nothing so significant. And in 2016, she actually had um, a lot of edema. And she was having chest pains and she was feeling like there was an elephant sitting on her chest. That's why she kept saying, I can't really breathe. And she was talking in that way, very labored. I can't really breathe. So we took her to um, the emergency room and she was having significant heart failure. And so she also had kidney failure. And in that moment, my mother... um, was was really in a lot of pain and having the shortness of breath. And, and with all of that going on, the chaos, the confusion. Uh, now, again, my mother is um, <laughs> the mother of seven children, all of which are all very uh, close to her in different ways. And so all of us with varying opinions and all of the information coming, swirling around and 
the short of the experience was, okay, we can actually give her dialysis to try to remove some of the fluids, et cetera, et cetera. Or you can just take her home um, with hospice. And so that was a shocker for all of us because we hadn't had any discussion about mom having heart failure or any of these things. These weren't things that we had heard before. And so, you know, we knew she had high blood pressure, like Dr. Menderata said, the, all of the risk factors, um, the obesity, uh, high stress, uncontrolled high blood pressure um, from the high stress. <laughs> she had never had diabetes she, and she's still not diabetic, but she was having such stress to her heart. And so we did decide to actually um, have, have the dialysis happen because she hadn't been on dialysis before. But that was at that point when she was diagnosed with the congestive heart failure. So um, five years ago, she started in her 70s um, with, the, with the kidney failure and the dialysis, which is actually hard on the heart as well. So, you know, we, we got the information in a crisis, which was not the most ideal situation being in this industry and understanding how much palliative care could help a person. It was so hard to know that we hadn't had the support of palliative care prior to this, this crisis. Dr. Menderata mentioned in his uh, explanation of the heart failure and the things that can help is having those regular checkups, having those check-ins with your doctor, making sure that if you feel anything off, that you start discussing that and getting the support as quickly as possible. And then, of course, having the palliative support would have been very, very helpful from the onset, but we got it on the back end. Um, my mom actually ended up being supported by hospice services, which actually, because at the stage of the diagnosis, she was toward the end stages of the heart failure, but also having kidney failure as well. So there were multi organ failures happening, and hospice at that point was really the best. Um, support. But I'm glad to say that with the significant support of palliative care through hospice services, my mother was able to stabilize. She was not going back and forth to the hospital. Um, she was able to get the support in the home that was needed. It helped us look at what to do as a family. It helped us start looking at longer uh, longer term goals as far as how we would support her. And she actually graduated from hospice services, meaning she was stable to a place where she didn't need it anymore. And she doesn't need it currently. So having the option of palliative care um, before and after, because again, hospice doesn't always uh, end in death. Sometimes you actually graduate and just need palliative support until you decline because of the advanced illness again, and need that more focused, comprehensive support. But our experience was, unfortunately, like many others, where people don't get the information as quickly as they could, and that hinders the ability to support in the best way. But I would definitely recommend anyone having any difficulty with, um, like Dr. Menderata said, these symptoms that, that people have, because she was having shortness of breath before. But it was blown off as just being, you know, overweight. You you get short of breath because you're fat. <laughs> you know, that's that's not, um, you know, that's a little a little uh, dismissive. But sometimes people are fearful of finding out things that they really don't want to know. But having the option to partner with someone that provides palliative care is a great way for you to meet those challenges without having to worry about how you're going to do it alone.
And Donna, I wanted to uh, also add uh, or a question or find out from you about the role of you and your family in the care of your mother. This is National Family Caregivers Month, and uh, with the purpose being to talk about the role that family caregivers uh, uh, give in, in connection with their family members. What did you do to to take care of the caregiver as well as the person receiving the care, in this case, your mom. Absolutely. And and you're right. It is um, National Family Caregivers Month as well as National Hospice and Palliative Care Month. And they work so well together, having support for the person who physically needs the care, but also having the family be supported. As I mentioned, um, there are seven of us, but we don't all live in the same area. So there's some long distance caregiving components. There's some on-site caregiving components. And there's, you know, people who are remotely providing care. And so one of the best things that I I remember in this process, of course, it's not over. We're we're learning and we're growing and we're continuing to figure it out because caregiving is an ongoing process. And you never know what you don't know until you encounter a situation where you have the opportunity to learn. And so all of us as I mentioned initially, we all have different connections to my mother. Of course, we love her very much, all of us individually and collectively, but we all have different gifts. We all have different talents. We all have different strengths and weaknesses. And so in the caregiving continuum, you have to be willing to identify what those strengths and weaknesses are so that you can be the best support to the person who needs the care. Understanding oftentimes that the person who needs the care is in a situation where they would rather not need the care. So you have to balance understanding how the challenge to that person physically, mentally, spiritually, and emotionally can impact them receiving the care. My mother was very, very independent, very strong willed, <laughs> still is. And um, having to have someone provide care was not an easy thing for her. And, you know, in that she did not want to be a burden to anyone. She didn't want to impact anyone's natural flow of their life. You know, many of her children have children and their children have children. So, you know, her looking at interrupting the life of her children because she needs care was not a comfortable situation for her. So I would say to caregivers, um, whether it's one person or 10 people or, you know, it doesn't matter. Each person has to be honest and bring to that experience all of their, their components of care, care for themselves and care for their loved one through the areas that are their strengths and making sure that that person is supported in ways that honor them, that allow them to feel dignity while they're looking for the quality balance and just making sure that each person understands that it's not about them, but about the person in the center of the care. And one final question, Donna, it sounds like palliative care has really favorably affected the prognosis of your mom's heart failure condition. Am I correct? You're absolutely correct. I mean, you know, we got the the information that she had hours to days if we had made a different decision. And that was, again, five years ago. So I'm very thankful for the support of palliative care and everything that has come as a result of that. Of course, I've been in hospice and palliative care for a very long time myself, and I've seen it be beneficial to many families, not just my own. So I'm very thankful for this 
work and the support of those who are able to provide this wonderful service to families because it really helps enhance their quality of life as a collective, not just the person physically needing the care, but everyone providing the care for that person. Well, that's very good news. And I hope your mom continues to uh, thrive and uh, have a quality of life. So thank um, you. Thank you so much. Lovely story. Well, Dr. Mandarada, I wanted to get back to you in this uh, American Heart Association study. Now that we've had this excellent tutorial from Donna about palliative care, give us a little background. First of all, I'm curious to know, is this something that was really profound about these findings? And, and then taking it one step further, some of the findings that, that occurred, explain to us. So I guess the first part of it would be, what was the impetus for conducting this study? And then, and I think you mentioned this a little earlier about reducing the risk of mechanical ventilation. How did this all come together? Yeah, thank you very much, Cheryl. And, and a beautiful story with, uh, from Donna. I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, you know, I think the secret here is uh, patients and families making well-informed decisions in the comfort of their homes. If you think about it, Cheryl, uh, majority of the time, patients that are 911 to the hospital, their main objective is to get well. And uh, the ones that are caring for them are often performing heroic measures to just get to get them back to baseline so they can get comfortable enough to leave the hospital. This is a very difficult time for families and patients to make uh, big decisions about goals of care and their health. So I think uh, the benefit of uh, not moving to mechanical ventilation really comes from patients making these well-informed decisions in the comfort of their own home. So was this a, a new discovery that in the past there has been more likely of getting people to the hospital and, and putting them on a ventilator? Uh, and, and then now there was this new discovery that palliative care might be a better alternative for treatment care. Just trying to get a sense of why this was uh, such an important study. Yeah, um, as Donna mentioned, by no means uh, anything new here. Uh, I, I think having patients make decisions in the comfort of their home uh, with uh, informed information with their loved ones really goes a long way. They've had the chance to really understand the disease process and talk it over with their family. Uh, in an event they can't make decisions for themselves, their families are then obligated to make decisions for them, which could be very difficult on family members. And in, in Donna's situation, she shared a story with uh, many different uh, siblings and brothers and sisters that all have uh, a point of view. So when patients are able to make their own decisions, I think uh, this is by no means a revolutionary, but certainly a great study done by HA. So let's get back to heart failure generally. How, how do healthcare providers, obviously what you're telling us is that the family and, and certainly the patient themselves um, are involved in uh, the selection of the right treatment option, but, but what is that process that, that occurs? How does uh, the physician advise the family and and also based on diagnosis and uh, make the the best choice for treatment options. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And then uh, the 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 decision is made together. Uh, if if I can use that key phrase together, it's with not a one way therapy plan, but 
physicians or a healthcare team can suggest these are the great these are the right options for patients but the decision really comes down to knowing and understanding your patients their beliefs their their uh, what they can tolerate and uh, um, what's best in their interest and it's having a good communication plan with your physician or your healthcare team to discuss medications or non-invasive options or even invasive type of care but really look at the overall picture and use all the resources available, including palliative care. And I am just wondering, I'm kind of throwing a, a question in here. I mean, over time, we've heard that heart disease is still the number one uh, killer of, of individuals. Uh, do you have any sense that this is going to change of the, the findings of, of this uh, this study? I mean, and I'm kind of moving into COVID, but I just wanted to get your reaction as the as the medical advisor of the American Heart Association. What, what do you see in terms of the future for heart failure and other cardiac diseases? Do you think that's changing uh, in our society? Well, well, the study here did point out that the prevalence of heart failure will continue to increase. Um, and you'll see more of it by 2030, and also emphasizes the the need for uh, home palliative care services or uh, palliative care service in general. I think Donna's story really illustrates very beautifully uh, how palliative care can really help with goals of care, understanding the patients and what would they what they would want for themselves in a in a point in which they cannot no longer make decisions and really get into the nitty gritty of what symptom management is and how patients can start feeling better and understand their disease process, along with the support of their family. Have you seen any changes that are occurring in our society now as a result of of COVID, COVID-19? And has there been a need for and uh, an importance of, of looking at palliative care? Well, I think this has been a very, very challenging time and very unprecedented time in, in history. Um, uh, but you know what? I think it, it's got people thinking. It's got people thinking about their health. It's got them thinking about the health of their loved ones and really start focusing on quality of life. So I'm really grateful for this study. It really validates and points out uh, that uh, resources like palliative care really hone in on goals of care and symptom management. And last but not least, really the quality of life. And Donna, I wanted to get back to you uh, about the impact of, of COVID-19. Uh, you're you're uh, associated with Capital Caring Health. And did you, over the last uh, several years, I guess, year and a half, um, see changes in the attitude of, of patients and their families in, in um, administering palliative care and hospice care? I would even go so far beyond uh, heart failure, but in others, uh, what what have you noticed? What have you seen? It's absolutely been eye-opening, as Dr. Menderata said. A lot of families are focused more now on the health of their families, um, identifying underlying concerns that they may not have been aware of, because, of course, we know with the pandemic, there were many underlying disease um, processes that significantly impacted those who got COVID and those who actually survived COVID. So there were the really multi-factored um, findings from this, this pandemic situation that 
we all experienced, people really got an eye-opening discovery. Of course, those in our industry, we deal with life and death and quality of life and experience every day. But here we were facing a global pandemic where everyone was thinking about mortality. Everyone was thinking about what happens if I get it. Everyone was thinking about, well, am I healthy enough to survive it? And there, those were the starting points of many conversations, some of them about advanced illnesses such as heart disease and other diseases that would allow a person to have a, a less of a chance of surviving COVID. So the fear factor that, that came into play, unfortunately, um, was brought about because so many there was such such loss with, with COVID, but it really opened a lot of eyes to see that things can change very rapidly, especially with this, this threat. But having the best outcome depends on having the best uh, beginning. And people paid more attention to what they could pay attention to and try to change and, and focus on. And did you see more people coming or being a part of the care that occurred at uh, Capital Caring Health uh, as a result? Absolutely. Unfortunately, um, because COVID caused a lot of loss of life and very quickly, we cared for lots of patients who suffered um, with COVID and then ultimately transitioned um, with, with the disease process. But at the same time, we were able to support people who who did recover. So we saw a lot of um, different experiences with COVID and we're continuing to see significant changes through lots of people being vaccinated. Um, the numbers are going down, but still at the same time, we're facing challenges that we had not faced before and that we will continue to, to face and try to mitigate with all of the interventions that we can. But still being able to provide the support that people need should they encounter this disease process and need the additional support at home with hospice care. We're able to provide that support and we have. And I'm thankful that, again, many of those families that we cared for were able to be discharged from hospice services because they were supported through the difficulty and the the really hard time of the disease and they were able to stabilize and recover and no longer need the services. So that's the benefit of having care when you need it, because it doesn't mean um, it's a death sentence. It doesn't mean that because you need the extra care, you'll always need it. It's really getting the help you need at the time you need it. And we've been talking a lot about heart failure here, but uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, Dr. Mandarada, because COVID is in so much in our minds, even now, while a lot of us have been vaccinated, there are those who have not been vaccinated, those who might have had some difficulties, uh, even if they've got the COVID. Has there been um, sort of a fallout from COVID-19 in terms of other kinds of heart problems that have occurred or could occur, um, either more more likely, maybe those folks who were uh, vaccinated and or even if they didn't and they didn't get vaccinated. I guess I'm trying to get at what kinds of symptoms related to the heart people who had COVID or have not had COVID and, and might get it um, could, could occur. Yeah, you know, I, I think I think 
the, what it comes down to is patients understanding uh, themselves and their bodies um, and, and access to care. Um, for whether you chose to get vaccinated or not, and we hope you did, um, that really reduces your risks of, of spreading, getting, and uh, getting hospitalized and actually deteriorating from COVID. I think we saw that firsthand. Um, um, and, 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 and that communication and message really did go out uh, to our patients. And, and we were grateful to see many of them were following those recommendations. But certainly during this time, one of the things that is very obvious is that the, they have uh, many patients have ignored um, uh, their underlying health conditions, um, and hence a return with what we call now deferred care with a worsening of heart failure, worsening of some of the uh, underlying comorbid conditions like worse blood pressure or uncontrolled diabetes. And so when we see patients coming back, it's not necessarily whether they've been vaccinated or not. It's just making sure that they're getting routine care for all of their chronic medical conditions, which in itself can exacerbate heart failure. And I would like to ask you again, Dr. Mandarada, because you started out by talking about prevention. When you see your patients of any age, but particularly because of, of your association with the American Heart Association, remind us again of how we can prevent heart disease. What do we need to do in our lives to make sure this doesn't happen? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think really sitting and having an open conversation with your primary care doctor or your healthcare team, understanding your own history. I think one of the biggest ways to prevent this is really prevention in itself. Um, focus on taking better care of yourself, uh, controlling if you have high blood pressure or diabetes, really optimizing that care, control your blood pressure, control your diabetes, your A1C should be at very good. Um, and you know, exercise, decrease stress, um, know more about the disease. Um, and at any point you have a question or a concern, reach out to your healthcare team. All right. And the last question for both of you, um, we'll start with you, Donna. How can patients and their families get connected with palliative care options in the greater D.C. area? Certainly. People can visit our website at capitalcaring.org. They can also check out National Partnership for Healthcare and Hospice Innovations. That's NPHI at hospiceinnovations.org. And of course, by connecting with and collaborating with organizations like the American Heart Association, being so key to helping us get the message out and amplifying our voices about the benefit of palliative care is wonderful. I also want to mention just really quickly that Capital Caring Health on our website is distributing a wonderful resource, the Advanced Cardiac Care Program Guide for Patients and Caregivers. It was a collaboration with the American Heart Association and the National Partnership for Healthcare and Hospice Innovation. And it's an extremely beneficial tool and, and resource for families who are dealing with um, a, a loved one with advanced cardiac uh, concerns. So that's a great resource that's available at no charge on our website, capitalcaring.org. Okay, I was gonna ask you to make sure that you gave that, uh, that website address. Um, and as you said, capitalcaring.org? Yes, ma'am. All right. And Dr. Mandarada, any final recommendations in terms of a good resource for people to check out and, and um, go to in terms of, of this whole issue of heart failure and um, uh, heart conditions? 
Absolutely. You can log on to kp.org and uh, look at the resources available online, look at palliative care resources and also life care planning resources. All right. Well, I want to thank Dr. Niraj Mandarada and Donna Gales for joining me today. If you're interested in learning more about Aging Matters, of course, you can visit our website, which is agingmattersonline.com. There you can access all of our radio programs as well as our TV show content, and all of our programs are on Apple and Spotify, so it's important to check those as well. And then Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media, and to learn more about that company, you can visit inkmouthmedia.com. Thank you for listening to Aging Matters today. And remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week. Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs.